You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading today comes from Genesis chapter 6, verse 8 through chapter 7, verse 24. But Noah found favors in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive." Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred when the floodwaters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, and on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rains fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons... Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Then the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind." Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, go ahead and take your seats. Uh, First time guest visitors. Those in town, from out of town, big warm welcome to you. Honor that you're here. If I haven't met you before, my name's Josh, the pastor here at Praxis. Um, Go ahead, grab your Bibles, open them up. We've been journeying through Genesis for nine weeks now. Nine weeks, hopefully you've been enjoying it. We've seen 
in this uh, first several chapters, many, many great pivotal moments in the story of God already take place. So we saw at the beginning, God creating, creating separation of environments so that um, living things could thrive all the way from animals and plants to humans. We've seen sin enter in and, and break down this creation. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been tracing these effects of sin down through two genealogies, that of Cain and Seth. And we've been um, seeing humanity revolting against God's ordered design, his plan for creation, and living in the way that they wanted to, really buying into that first lie of Satan that they didn't need God, they could be God. And mankind has been um, kind of walking into increasing more and more sinfulness. Their desires became the, the standards of right and wrong. They became the arbiters of truth. And we left off last week in chapter 6 with, um, with this. We read that the Lord saw all of this wickedness taking place. It was great in the earth. And every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted making man. And so he said, I will blot out the man that I've created from the face of the earth. The animals the creeping things, the birds of the heaven. And um, this morning, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a look at how God went about doing that with the flood. We're probably all familiar with the story of the flood. Everyone in the room, I don't know if you haven't heard it before, um, Hollywood has lots of renditions of it, all the way from cartoons to films. None of them are good or accurate, but there's lots of them. If you've grown up in church, you've seen this. Um, the flannel graph really kind of polished, felt, cut-out version. This is how we were told it as kids in the 80s and 90s. Um, <laughs> even if you've never darkened the doorway of a church before, if you've been to a toy store, we, we, there's lots of examples of this. My kids have this toy, Noah's Ark. It's very famous. Pretty much everyone in the culture, you're going to be familiar with this. But we tend to round some of the edges off of this story. You'll notice this playset here, it doesn't have any of the hard-hearted pagans that your kids can squeeze the air out of in the bathtub. <laughs> because we, we like the story of the animals being saved, but the darker parts of it where God judges humanity, they're a little tougher to swallow. There's some sides that are difficult, and if we just glaze over it, we, can, we, we miss a lot of just the tough questions, but also some of the glorious truths of this section. So we're going to dive in. We're going to try to unpack some of it this week. It's a long section. There's lots in here, but um, the, the, more than we're going to be able to handle. So i got to pray. I want to invite you to open your Bibles up if you haven't already, and um, then we will dive in. Father, I just ask as we, as we dive into this, this story, this well-known story, but also... Um, one that contains some harder moments and some tougher concepts. I pray that your spirit would be present. And we believe that this, is, this, is, this scripture has been preserved for a purpose. It was spoken by you and preserved for you, by you throughout time for our good, that we would be instructed and built up. And as the New Testament says, lacking in nothing. So we pray, would you do your work? Would you unpack the truths of this in our minds, in our hearts? so that we could better reflect your son, so that we could better understand you. We're wholly dependent on you for this task. I, I'm dependent on you and, and very aware today of my need for you. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, would you come, inhabit this time as we open your word, and we pray in the great name of Christ for his glory. Amen. All right, we are in chapter 6, verse 9. And it opens very similar to how it did last week. Listen to this. These are the generations of Noah. If you are with us last week, we talked about the generations of Adam. These are two different toledots, genealogical stories that have been preserved, probably functioned as individual sections, but have been put together in the book of Genesis by, um, by Moses in order to instruct us. And what we see here um, is a story of the generations of Noah. But if you were with us last week, Noah appeared in the genealogy last week as well. Um, a little to your left in chapter 5, we saw in verse 26 that, um, pardon me, 28, Lamech. Lamech lived 182 years, fathered a son, and named him Noah. There's Noah. He's in our section this week, but he was last week as well. Something really interesting is Methuselah named him, or it says he called him Noah. This is almost like a prophecy. 
He's proclaiming him, Noah. And this word Noah in the original language rhymes with, with, um, with rest. So it says here um, that he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. Some of your translations will say rest. He's, he's prophesying, in a sense, Noah's going to be the one that would help bring some of the relief from the curse. Just as Eve hoped that Cain would be that, and hope that Seth would be that. Noah or um, Lamech is now hoping that Noah would be that. These are the generations of Noah now. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, it says. It's, um, we learn lots about Noah here now. He, he, he walked with God, and that was a phrase again, if you were with us last week, we looked at. It's um, it's the verbiage that the Old Testament uses to describe those who are walking in covenant and obedience to God. And so last week we saw Enoch walking with God, if you remember that, and then Enoch got taken. Enoch, though, had a son named Methuselah, who we know walked with God, preserved the stories of how God had moved um, for future generations. We talked about that last week. Lamech walked with God, and we see here, hoped in God by prophesying, naming, calling his son Noah, and now we're being told Noah walks with God. We're seeing a godly genealogy. We saw in the line of Cain, fathers pass down sin. We inherit the sins of our fathers to some degree, but now we're being shown that fathers also have a positive effect. They pass down faithfulness. Noah's walking with the Lord because his father did, and his father's father, and his father's father's father Fathers pass down sin, but fathers also pass down faith. And the Bible tells us this, but stats do too. I found a couple studies. I'll I'll cite them. Um, The first one I found this week is that if a mother attends a Sunday gathering of the church, 15% of the children will will, um, have faith when they grow up. So if mom believes and takes the kids to church, 15% of the kids will continue on in the faith. If dad takes the kids to church and has faith, 55% of the time the kids will as well. Another study um, found that if the mother is the first to become a Christian in a family, there's a 17% probability everyone else in the household will follow. But if the father is the first to come to faith in the household, there's a 93% probability the rest of the household will as well. Now, I am not saying that Fathers are more important than moms or anything. We need both of them. But what I am saying is that fathers are important, vitally important. Showing up weekly to a gathering, leading our kids in some sort of a devotion could be one of the most spiritually significant things we do in the life of our children. These things produce powerful results in our lineages. And I want to, before we move on, I want you to just look around to your left and right for a second. Look around this room. There's a lot of men here. There's a lot of men in in Praxis, and kind of manly-looking men, too. Guys with beards and pit stains. (laughs) Statistically speaking, this is an anomaly. This is a big anomaly. The the stats are 70% of churches are, like, people, or 70% of Christians, I could word it, are, are women. 70%. And part of that is because you come to church and there's doilies and like flower arrangements and we're singing prom songs to Jesus that sound like, is that Taylor Swift or is that a worship song? If we're being honest, right? It's not a place that's typically where men would like to hang out. But if you look around here, there's a lot of men. Praxis is trending towards 60% of the church being men and a lot of them are between the ages of 20 and 40, which is the least likely demographic to darken the doorway of a church. So something unique is going on here and I I highlight this now because I want to speak to the men directly and it's not because I'm excluding the women, it's because there's, for some reason, a lot of men in this church, which is exciting. Men, we play an important role. We play a very important role in our homes in the culture, in the advancing of the mission of God in the world, the Bible states it, stats prove it. You are made for more than leisure and pleasure and profit. 
I'm just going to say that again. You are made for more than leisure and pleasure and profit. The culture will tell you something different, but I want you to hear what the Bible says. You were made for more than leisure and pleasure and profit. You have a, a, a role to play in the advancing of faith in your family and the world. And if you were a fellow dad in the room, um, our kids are going to become like us. We're seeing this in these two genealogies. The question is, what sort of legacy are we passing on? This has had me on my face this week. This text is showing us two ways. And the question it keeps bringing before us is, which one are we going to walk in? Are we going to walk with the Lord? Or are we going to walk in the ways of the world around us? We're seeing in this story how walking with God has an effect on our genealogy. Noah walked in obedience to God's commands like his father, his father's father, and his father's father's father. Noah, it says, was a righteous man. And that phrase right there, Noah was a righteous man, it, it's caused many to stumble. Here's why. is because if you go over to Romans, what we see... There is, it says, no one is righteous. No, not one. And so you kind of look and go, what is the Bible doing here? Which is it? No one righteous or is Noah righteous? Additionally, you see Psalm 14. It says that all of mankind is turned aside. Together they become uh, corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. So how could Noah here be described as righteous? Well, one important to note, it's not calling him sinless. It's not calling him absolutely righteous or blame, blameless, really. It's, it's in reference to the surrounding culture. It's contrasting walking with the Lord to walking in the way of the world around them. Actually, it describes him as blameless in his generation, which is kind of a neat phrase. So he's, he's blameless in his generation. It speaks to him abstaining from sin, not being free of sin. No one in Scripture is free from sin. The message of all of Scripture is that we are not good people with good hearts. We're sinful people who Jesus actually needs to come and put a new heart in so that we can be saved. Our only hope is that God would come and do an intervening work in our lives. This phrase, I'm blameless, where it says David is blameless in his generation, um, we see it elsewhere in Scripture. David describes himself as blameless before the Lord. And if you know the story of, of David... He's certainly no one that we would call blameless, blemished, maybe. The reason why he can be called blameless and Noah can be found blameless is because of what they hoped in. They hoped in a savior who would blot out their sins. They hoped forward in a coming Messiah. We place our faith backward on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We're both hoping in the same things, and our blameless right standing and their blameless right standing both come from the same person and the same event. They looked forward to it. We look back at it. Noah was righteous, blameless in his generation. Ephesians, if you want to hang a right in your Bible over to Ephesians 2, we, we read about how this takes place in our own lives. Ephesians 2 says that you and I were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were following after the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, just like the time of Noah, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. And Ephesians says that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then God comes and intervenes. He does something, and it says this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, not that we loved him, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. None of us, righteousness is, oh, I'm stumbling. None of us gets to heaven by our righteousness. I don't know what I was trying to do there with that word, but... None of us gets to heaven by our own righteousness. We get to heaven by his. And it's the same story with Noah. So if you go back over to Genesis, we actually left off last week in verse 8, reading that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Why is Noah righteous? Because he found favor from God. That's why. Keith put it really well in his sermon a few weeks ago when he says, religion says that if I obey, I'll be accepted. But Christianity says that I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Noah's righteousness proceeded from his faith. It didn't earn his salvation, it proceeded from it. 
The Bible is not a collection of stories of good people. We, we tend to do this with the story of Noah. Pulled him up as this great example. But the, story, the whole Bible is full of stories of evil people who are characters in the greater narrative of a good and gracious God. Noah's not the, the hero of this story that we're reading. In fact, one commentator I read said, Noah's a bit player in the story of God. This story is just about God's grace. And actually, it's God's grace to Noah, but his whole family. Take a look at verse 9. It says, or 10, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Were they righteous? It doesn't tell us that. Why did they get saved? God's grace. Just God's grace. In fact, Exodus 20, which is where we find the list of the Ten Commandments. In the second commandment, we read this. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I show loving devotion to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Where again, we're seeing the juxtaposition of two family lines. One has God visiting the sins to the third and fourth generation. The other is God being gracious to those who walk with him and keep his commandments. And that's what I think is going on here with Hamshem and Japheth. God's being gracious to them. It doesn't tell us they've done anything. God's just gracious to them. Out of this, like this idea that Noah was blameless in his generation and walked with God, this is how God is viewing him. But it's interesting to stop and think, like, what did Noah look like to the culture around him? What did it look like? This guy out in the middle of the desert building an ark for 120 years. Probably looked like a, he had a few screws loose. He a bit of an oddball. What are you doing out there? He probably looked a little bit more weird than Ken Ham even building an ark out in the middle of Kentucky. When we walk with God, we will stick out. Noah stuck out. We take up the responsibility and command of raising our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. We will stick out because the culture doesn't do this. Walking with God is different and looks different than walking in the ways of the culture around us. Um, G.K. Chesterton, he said this. I love this quote. A man with a definite belief always appears bizarre. Because he doesn't change with the world. Millions of black-coated men call themselves sane and sensible merely because they always catch the fashionable insanity. They're hurried into madness after madness by the whirlpool of the world. And this, this is what's going on around us. The whirlpool of the world wants to suck us into this, this um, fashionable insanity. And when we choose to walk in the fear and instruction of the Lord walk with the Lord, it looks different. It, it has to look different. Our righteousness is a gift, but that gift always has a cost. We will either walk with God or we will walk in the ways of the world around us. And it has a cost. Like the days of Noah, we live in a day and age where walking in obedience to God is peculiar. It's contranormative. It means thinking and functioning in a completely different way than the culture around us. And like the days of Noah, it has a cost, but has a cost on both ends. There is either a cost now or there will be a cost for all eternity. There's a cost in the immediate to follow God, but there will be an eternal cost for all of those who do not walk in the fear and instruction of the Lord. And this, this story and its grace is, is showing us the ultimate end of what comes when we do not walk with the Lord. The flood, they're taken away. And those who walk with the Lord are preserved. We saw this in Enoch. Remember him? He was taken. He, he didn't taste death. Noah's preserved by going through the flood. And sometimes God saves us from things. But sometimes God saves us through things as well, but what we need to see is that God saves those who walk in his way. Take a look at verse 11 with me. It says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. 
Um, this word here, corrupt, that we just read, it speaks of kind of like breaking down, not following the order of its design. Like we, we could probably use like it's deconstructing from its design. And it says all flesh had corrupted their way. They're all diverting away from the order and design that God created them for. Instead of peace now, it says there's violence. And so it goes on and it says, God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all this flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I'll destroy them with the earth. So make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50, and its height 30. Interesting side note, this is the same proportionate dimensions as a battleship is modernly. So it's a, it's a, it's a nautically sound vessel. He says, make a roof for the ark. Finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks, for behold, I'm bringing a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life is under heaven. Lot, lots going on here. Big, big text. Um, I want to pause for a minute to just talk about a few things. First is something that we might not have noticed in the story, kind of the, the larger narrative structure if you were with us earlier in the series, they talked about um, chiasms. Anyone remember those? Chiasms. It's a literary device that kind of takes a story and folds it on itself. It's like a mirrored version. We're seeing a chiasm in the grander narrative here. If you remember back in Genesis 1, it says God created out of the waters. Those waters were a symbol of chaos and disorder, and God brought order out of them. Now this ordered creation has revolted against him, it's turning itself into chaos, so God sends it right back into water. He's judging it with water, and we're seeing a chiasm. From water, back into water. The curse is spread across the whole earth, so he's going to cover the whole earth in back with the chaos. But we need to see he's not giving up on it. See this a little bit today as we read on, but it's going to come up a lot more next week. God is actually going to use water to undo the broken sinfulness and disorder that spread across his creation. And I, I love this specific aspect of this story because when it looks like chaos is one, God actually uses chaos to defeat itself. Do you see this? This picture of chaos is what God judges the world with, and he brings life back out of it again. And this gives us hope. When we're walking with the Lord, the chaos that we face isn't thwarting his plan. If we walk with the Lord, we will face chaotic opposition, but we have this hope that he is greater than the chaos. Walking with the Lord will often come with this cost, but we know, and, and, and living in Canada today, we're going to face opposition. For If we believe the Bible and what it says, we're going to face opposition. But we have this promise that this, what looks like just culture spinning off into chaos, God's greater than it. He can bring order out of that. He knows how to deliver people from it. Amen? Yeah, this is, this is what baptism is actually a picture of. If you go hang right again in your Bible over to uh, 1 Peter 3. I'm just going to read 1 Peter 3.18. It's another great reminder that God brings order out of chaos. It starts by saying this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So if you remember this, the, the, the crucifixion of Christ... All the sinful forces in the world conspired to put him to death. But through that, God actually brought salvation to the world. God uses chaos to defeat chaos over and over and over because he's flexing and he's showing us he's more powerful than it. So we can have hope in the midst of it. It goes on to say this. Um, so Jesus was crucified in the flesh um, and he went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly didn't obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. He says this now, baptism corresponds to this. It corresponds to the flood. 
baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not by removing the dirt from your body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. We are baptized as a way of saying we believe God through chaos will save us. It's an outward demonstration of that. Just as God preserved Noah through a flood, we go into the waters acknowledging that we deserve the wrath of God, but we've been preserved and saved from the wrath of God by Christ. And this is why, if you're a Christian, you need to be baptized. Interesting stuff. There's so much here. Like, there is, there's no bottom to the theology that's coming out in this story. And in our community groups this week, we're going to dig into this a lot more. If you're not in a community group, try to get plugged into one. There's, there's lots here. We'll, we'll dig through it a little bit um, in more depth in our community groups this week. But I want, to, um, I want to address a couple things. Things that often come up when Christians talk about the flood. Um, I think often when Christians interact with the flood, what they're doing is um, we end up just debating and fighting over a whole bunch of small little details. And so I want to do some of that together this morning, just for fun. The first question I think that Christians often get into fights over in this story is, is this. Did it really happen? Is this a real story? Or is it just a myth? Jordan Peterson, if you've listened to any of his lectures on Genesis, this is kind of where he lands. He'd say this is kind of just some... Um, some sort of idea, a concept that's getting communicated in all of the different cultures. Uh, did, probably didn't happen, but there's ideas and truths to this that we can, we can pull from the story. It's kind of allegory. And I like lots of what Jordan Peterson has to say, but I really strongly disagree with him on what's actually going on here in Genesis for a few different reasons. One, the Bible doesn't present it as a myth. So did it happen? Yeah, and my argument why, the Bible presents it as a fact. This is written as history. And as you go through the rest of the scripture, you find a lot of other people talking about it as if it is historical and as if it's true. So Ezekiel talks about it. Isaiah talks about it. Luke talks about it. Peter talks about it. Jesus talks about it. And all of them speak to it as if it is a factual thing that happened. The second reason I believe this actually took place and we're to read it that way is that we find this story in other cultures. Now, guys like Peterson will say, well, that's because all of us kind of have this, there's this philosophical thing we're trying to explain in our mind, and so every culture's created this flood narrative to explain the same thing. I look at it completely the other way. Every culture has this flood narrative because it happened. We didn't just pull it out of the ether. It's actually been passed down from generations because it's a factual event that took place. Iran, it has a story whereby judgment is poured out on a selection of people and two of every animal are preserved. India, Vishnu came down, this time in the form of a fish, and he warned about a flood and called a man to fill a boat with grain and animals. Thailand, uh, their supreme god created people and about a thousand years passed and descendants were wicked and crude and didn't worship the deity any longer, so he caused a great flood and they escaped in a magical gourd. Love that part of the story. Most southeastern Asian countries have a story of a flood where a few people end up repopulating the earth. The Aztecs, South America, they have flood stories. The Greeks in Europe, they have flood stories. North America, a lot of the First Nations people have flood narratives. The Cree, the Ojibwe, the Algonquin, all the way to the Inuit, they have a flood narrative, and these things match up. And if you want more info on that, we've got lots of information up on our Instagram, or sorry, on our blog. You can go down there, and some of the links that I link to there, they'll take you. You can go lose some hours. I lost a bunch this week again. The stories, they're different, but they all have a global flood narrative. They draw a different meaning from it. Some of them attribute it to a different god, but they have a flood narrative. I'm arguing it's happening. Third reason, I believe that we have to read this as a literal event is there's archeological evidence for it. Years ago, I worked on an exploratory drill, a big giant drill. We would drill down into the earth and bring up core samples. And so I worked for six, seven years side by side with a geologist, like literally shoulder to shoulder. We'd pull up limestone samples, break them open and find all sorts of things sea life, dinosaur bits, really interesting. Um, 
I'm not an archaeologist, nor am I a geologist, but I, again, I have some links up on, on, on our blog that will point to some more things. And um, you can go and you can find that there's a lot of archaeological evidence that points to the flood. Now, the larger ac academic institutions, they, don't, they are against the idea of there being a god. They're, they're opposed to the idea of a flood. So not a lot of grants or funding get tossed at people who want to do research proving the flood. But there is a lot of research out there. So you can go, you can go take a look at that. The second question, though, Christians like to go to war over, how big was this flood? So I want to I share a couple of perspectives on this. The first would be, it is a flood that took place in the known world. So a, a kind of a, a smaller region of the earth. It was an extensive regional flood, though. It wiped out all life in the, the Tigris, Euphrates Valley, into the Mediterranean Basin and the Black Sea, the area surrounding it, around... Um, they say 70,000 square kilometers would have been flooded. And the reason why they, they pull that number up is because there's a lot of archaeological evidence to this end. Even secular scientists point to a large flood that took place in the Black Sea region about 9,000 years ago is their best guesstimate. And just to be accurate, this is where all of civilization would have lived at this time. This is where civilization was centered. And so a flood like this probably would have wiped out all of civilization. But the pushback is, that, well, then why does the Bible say the whole world? Why does it speak of it in much more um, global terms? The, the, those who hold this vision, they would say that, you know, just as Christopher Columbus thought he was going to sail off the edge of the earth. It's just they didn't know what they didn't know. Noah thought that the rim of the mountains was the, you know, kind of the edge of the world at the time. And so the flood came down, was contained in this larger scheme of, or this map that they knew, and it wiped out all of human life within these confines. And while the flood might have then spread or rippled out as far as North and South America, wherever, it might not have wiped out animal life in those places. So the ark probably only needed to have... Um, the animals that were in that region that was going to be wiped out. That would be the argument. And I'll just say this, that there are people who love Jesus, love the Bible. Some of them have degrees in original languages, and they land here. And if you land here, Praxis can be home, and you're welcome. I want you to know that. We have room for a variety of opinions here. Here's what I think is going on in the text, though. I think, I think the text best sets up the idea of a global flood. And here's why. If you take a look at verse 7 or chapter 7, verse um, 12, 17. Let's go to 17. It says this. This flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, lifted it up, raised it high above the earth. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. So it says all the creatures. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the earth. It seems clear to me. It's speaking much more global, and it's saying that it's high above the tops of the mountains, not kind of just up to the rim of them. Um, this is why people find seashells on the tops of mountains. This is why we find sea life and dinosaurs concentrated to one kind of like level in the center of Alberta would be the argument. A lot of Silt and sand just came and buried all of life at once in this kind of thin strand of earth you find all of this deposited. It'd be why, you know, there's evidence of great um, water effects on geological features across North America. Could be that it was a small amounts of water over great periods of time, but it could also point to great volumes of water over a short amount of time. I think this is most clearly what the Bible is speaking to. And I've got, again, some links up on the, um, our blog if you're interested in kind of going, hey, what is some evidence that would point to this? Because I know there's a lot of questions that come up when you hear this. And to be fair, they're perfectly fair. So some would say, where did all this water come from? 
Where did it all come from? Because what you're, the text is saying here is that the water would have needed to rise 170,000 feet. That's substantial. Like, that's 100 feet of rain a day. That's more than Haida Gwaii, right? That's, that's lots and lots and lots of rain. Where did it come from? Well, that's a fair question. That would be outrageous if it was just raining, but actually the Bible says pre-flood there wasn't rain. There was a big kind of aquifer level in the earth that came up in the mornings and watered plants, like built-in underground sprinklers God had for the earth. And above the earth, there was this big water layer as well that created kind of a greenhouse atmosphere. But during the flood, they both came down together and clamped down all at once. And so over the course of 40 days, all of this water came up and came down and just flooded the whole of the earth. Then the question is, well, where did that much water go? Very, very valid the Bible says it came down over 40 days, but it took much longer to evaporate. If you take a look at the end of chapter 7 into verse 8, it tells us it took, after the 40 days, 150 days just for the flood to touch down on the tops of the mountains, just to kind of start to get hung up there. Then another three months went by before you could see the tops of the mountains, another 47 days before any land became apparent, and then it was months later before... Um, or long period of time before any, remember he sent the dove out to go find greenery. And then even more months went by before the land became visible and it became dry enough to even walk on because it would have just been a marshy bog and, and the Bible speaks to that. Now to our, if just thinking of this naturally, this is hard to compute and I get it. But the Bible is claiming that this is a supernatural event. If we're, if we're only looking at it through a natural lens, it's atrocious. But if you're only looking at life through a natural lens, you've got some bigger problems. <laughs> We've talked about this in a series we did last fall, um, the Doubting series. If you're only looking at life through a supernatural lens, you've got to account for how you popped out of a magical puddle some billions of years ago and somehow have evolved to, to what you are today. You also got to do away with the idea that your life has any meaning and purpose. Because pure naturalism says that you evolved just, or you exist just to evolve a little bit more. You don't have meaning or purpose or really any value or worth, certainly no more than any other organism that walks the face of the earth. So it's a supernatural event, but that's good news. It's good news that there is something greater. Another question that people will push back with to this traditional reading is, well, how do you get that many animals? Right? There's 22,000 different um, species of amphibian, reptiles, birds, and mammals. How would you get them all on? And then if you're going at least two of them, you're, you, and then seven of the, the tasty animals, you're, you've got about 42,000 animals at least supposedly fitting on this ark. Now, if, you're, if, if you've seen the Institute of Creation Research and Ken Ham, they, they built an ark in the middle of Kentucky that's to scale with this, they've got some really creative ideas around how that many animals fit in and how you would deal with the tens of thousands of liters of urine from all these animals and get them fresh water and food. They've got theories. You can go and research this. But I'd say this. The Bible doesn't tell us that every species of animal ended up on the ark. It says every kind. Every kind. So you don't need to have all of the different varieties. You can have the kind. And then they can go on and they can procreate and do their little changes. Um, you know, not, the Bible's not opposed to the idea of macro evolution or micro evolution, pardon me, but macro evolution. You don't see evolution from kind to kind, but you do see birds getting longer beaks and, and dogs creating different breeds. So did Adam or did Noah bring all the dogs in the world on? Well, I, I bet you money he didn't bring any chihuahuas on. Okay. <laughs> Because if you have to bend over to pet a dog, it's not really a dog. Just get that out of there. He probably bought some tall, handsome dogs, and the rest died in the flood where the rest of them should go today. <laughs> that was for free. <laughs> okay, so all of this other stuff dies. Where does it all go? Where are the millions of dead souls, piles of animals, 
Where did they come to rest and wouldn't it stink horrifically afterwards? Yeah, it's called Chilliwack. <laughs> if you have anyone from Chilliwack? Yeah, okay, you guys know this, right? You know this, this is why you're in Kelowna. Bigger question that Christians will, and, and seculars alike will argue about with this account is, how could a good and loving God judge humanity in this way? How could he wipe out all of humanity? What are we to think of a God who could do or even allow such terrible atrocities? A couple comments. First, we did a series called the Doubting Series, addressing the big questions of the faith last September and October, and we took this topic head on and dealt with it in a lot greater detail than we have time for right now. So I want to point you back to that. And, and I want to just say this, is that we, we rejoice when, when sinners and crooked, wicked men get justice. We tend to rejoice when we see people who, like, say a slave trader or somebody who's been, um, I don't know, pick any wicked deed. When they get their just desserts, we rejoice. We love those stories. We love justice, but we often don't love it when it's directed towards us. We, we forget this, that there is a time for justice to be distributed. Everyone will get their just desserts. And often when our sin comes up, we kind of do what Adam and Eve do. We just point fingers in every which direction. It was them, it's because of this, I inherited this. We just we explain it all away, but this story reminds us there, there is a justice coming. We demand payment for sin from those who wrong us, but we're astounded that there's consequences for our sin against God. And this is what's important to, for us to see in this story, is that when sinners spend their lives rebelling and pushing back against God, eventually he gives them what they want. C.S. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, he worded it this way. He said, eventually, the Lord proclaims over unrepentant sinners, your will be done. Okay, have it your way. In another piece of his literature, he says that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. God has pleaded with sinners. He continually does, as does Noah here, and we'll see this in a minute. Sinners have shut themselves off to God. The flood might seem appalling because God enacts justice on sinners, but we need to realize Almost every culture has a flood narrative. The Christian story of the flood is the only one that offers hope in the middle of this. The Babylonian gods just came and flooded it. No warning. The God of the Bible warns them. Noah warns them. Take a look at this. Second Peter says this. God didn't spare the ancient world except for Noah. But Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. He warned them, 120 years building the ark, he's warning them, a flood's coming. He just looked like a lunatic, and they ignored him. They didn't want to hear it. They wanted to do what they were doing. Noah was pleading with the descendants of Cain that had rejected the commands of the Lord. They weren't naive. And while this graphic display of God's justice is, is, is presented in this story, there's also a, a beautiful display of his grace. There's hope in this story as well. Take a look in verse 18 of chapter 6. God comes and establishes a covenant with Noah. He says, I'm establishing a covenant with you. Come into the ark, you and your sons and your wives with you. He comes and... and and he gives them something that he doesn't deserve. If you were with us earlier in the series, we talked about covenants. We're going to talk about it more next week, this covenant with Noah. But we talked about covenants and this type of covenant, which was referred to as a vassal Suzerian covenant. Suzerians, the rich landowners, coming and blessing the, the vassal or kind of that, that, um, the peasant with a blessing, coming and saying, hey, I'm going to give you a piece of land. We see here... Something very similar going on. God coming and blessing Noah with something that he doesn't deserve. He hasn't earned it. God's just blessed him with it. His obedience doesn't earn this. God gifts it to this. And, and Noah's response is obedience in light of it. In verse 22, it tells us this. Noah did what God commanded. 
He did all that God commanded. And God gave him a promise and he responded to it. God said, I'm going to do this. Noah responded in faith and trusted it. This, this is a picture of faith for us. In fact, Hebrews 10 and 11, it will unpack faith a lot more. If you want something good to read this afternoon or this week, go read it. But I want to show us a verse from Hebrews 11 up on the screen here. There we are. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So there's, there's what faith is. But then he says this, by this faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, by his faith, he condemned the world. They didn't respond. He responded, and he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And I want to pull this all together for us. This is how this all connects and lands for you and I here, is that just as in the day of Noah, people are doing whatever they wanted. We live in the midst of a culture that's doing whatever the heck it wants as well. Some in this room, you're living this way. You just do whatever you want. You're, you've fallen into the same error as the people in Noah's age. You are the arbiter of truth. What culture says is right and wrong is what you believe is right and wrong. And you've forgotten the command of the Lord. Just as God came and judged the earth with a the flood then, God is going to come and judge the earth again. Today, people are doubting the reality of this, but it's coming. Our, our culture pushes back against this to the point where we've taken the rainbow, which was God's promise that he wouldn't flood the earth again, and we wave it in his face while doing the exact same things that he came and judged the earth for then, doing whatever we want. Our whole culture is living in rebellion against God's design for them. Our whole culture, every one of us, forgetting that God is warned he's going to come and judge again. Second Peter says this, up on the screen. It says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they have from the beginning. But they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that existed then was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. God is going to return to judge. And the same warning Noah extended to his culture has been extended to us through the person of Christ today. There's a judgment coming. And I want to close by, by just walking in the pattern of Noah and giving the same warning that Noah gave to his culture because every single one of us needs to hear this. And I want to call us in response in four different ways. The first is that we need to repent. Turn from walking in the ways of the world and walk with him. Acts 3 says this. It says, repent of your sins and turn to God that, you may be, that your sins may be wiped away. Either your sins are wiped away or you will be wiped away. That is the message of the scripture. You need to repent. There is a coming judgment. Secondly, I want to call you to believe in Christ. To cry out to forgiveness. Um, cry out for forgiveness to, to the one who has stood in your place and took the consequences you don't have to. He is blotted out your sins so that you don't need to be blotted out. And there's only one way that you will be able to stand before the throne of God one day, and that is if Jesus Christ has become your Lord and Savior. Cry out to him. Romans 9 says this. It says, the one who believes in Jesus will never be put to shame. The third thing that I want to call us to is obedience. And this is something that does not get taught in the church much today, does not get called in. It's sort of this easy believism where you come to Christ and then you go right back and fall back into the whirlpool of the world again. And I just got to tell you, this is not the message of the scripture. You are saved from sin and we're to flee sin. That's why the scripture commands it. John 14 says this. It says that if we love Jesus, we will obey his commandments. 
1 John goes on to say, by this we can be sure that we've come to know him. You want to know if you're a disciple of Jesus? Take a look and go, do you obey his commandments? If you don't obey his commandments, you're, you're a disciple of someone else, possibly culture. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, you obey his commandments. You need to repent from our sins. We need to come to believe in him and we need to obey him. Lastly, we are to confess him. Romans 10.9 tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Because with the heart we believe and we're justified, but with our mouth we confess and we are saved. And there is a, a link here between confessing and professing Christ and actually being saved. Just as there is a link, if you're not obeying him, you're probably not his savior. He's probably not your savior. And if you've not confessed him, he is not your savior. Jesus said, if you won't confess me before man, I won't confess you before the Father. And so if you are here and you've been enamored by this person of Christ, but you've yet to repent, you've yet to call out for saving, and you've yet to profess him, I need to plead with you today. Call out to him. Call out to him. Because there is a point, just as in the days of Noah, where the door will close. There is a day when you will not have the opportunity to respond anymore. And you don't know when that is. Everyone here, everyone listening online, you have the opportunity to respond right now, but you might not get it this afternoon. A day of judgment is coming, and regardless of how good you think you are, it's not going to get you into heaven. No list of righteous deeds. No adherence to whatever law you think is going to earn you a right standing before God. It's not going to work. No cultural good deeds that you do, if that's rescuing street dogs or adopting children in Sudan or even showing up here on a Sunday, none of it will save you. You're wasting your time if you have not called out to Christ. And so this is a firm and a direct message. I'm just trying to preach the scripture. This is telling us there is a day of judgment coming. And Praxis, I want us to be ready. I want every single person here to, to call out for saving. We're to confess him. And outside of that, we're to go and tell others about this as well. We're to copy this pattern of Noah. This is what it means to walk in obedience to God. We profess him, and we go and tell him about him to others as well. And so there's a challenge here for all of us. If you are here and you're a Christian, we need to profess him. There's a day of judgment coming. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to call out to him because there's a day of judgment coming. If you're here and you're a Christian and you, you would call yourself a disciple of Jesus, you haven't been baptized, you're not walking in obedience, you need to be. You need to obey your Lord or he's not your Lord. And he's commanded you, if you're his disciple, be baptized. And I know there's people in this room, you need to take this step and be baptized. We've got a class next weekend. We're doing baptisms at Easter. Take this step of obedience. There's a very real judgment coming upon the world. But there's a way out of it, and his name is Jesus. Amen? And so if you're here and you're a Christian, we're going to respond now. I'm going to invite you to stand. When you're ready, we can come forward. You take this communion, which is a celebration. It's, it's, a, it's anchoring your faith week after week in this, that Jesus Christ has took your wrath. And so just as Noah is called righteous and blameless in his generation, you are righteous and blameless in this generation because of Christ. That's our only hope. We take this and we celebrate. If you're here and you are not a Christian, don't come take this. If you're here and you're living in disobedience to God, don't come and take this. Stay where you are. Take Jesus this morning. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I just I thank you for even stern words like this, this reminder that there's a judgment, but there's this picture of grace in the midst of it. We thank you for Christ, our Savior, who stood in our place, took the consequences we deserved, gifted us the righteousness that was only his, You've, you've saved us from the coming deluge, and we rejoice on the front end of what's coming.
because we are sure of this. Jesus Christ is our Lord, our Savior. He's God come and stood in our place to rescue and redeem mankind from Satan's sin and hell. And I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, would you draw many in this room back to yourself where there's been patterns of disobedience? Would you call those wandering souls away where we've bought into the whirlpool of culture? Would you save us? Would you correct our thinking that we could walk again in obedience to you? And I pray, just come search us, try us, know us, see our thoughts, see if there's any grievous way in us so that we could return and walk behind you as our Lord and Savior. And it's for your glory, for your fame, and in your great name that I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.